From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. My guest today is Dr. Melinda Page. Dr. Page is a nationally recognized trauma expert, the founder of the Trauma Competency Institute. For more than 20 years, she's counseled survivors of trauma and has worked tirelessly to provide training and consultation to clinicians throughout the United States. Dr. Page has a tremendous passion for working with survivors of trauma, and she explained how teaching clients to view trauma through a scientific lens can generate new and hopeful perspectives. Shame and guilt is primary in terms of what comes in with the client, and I'm thinking of ways in order for the client to be able to look through a scientific lens at themselves and not take what their brains were doing personally, but rather to see their mind's response, their body's response to the event as normal. Under stress, the brain does what it can do in the moment to survive based on old learning. So I worked with this man I'll always remember who had experiences in childhood because he was raised by his older brothers who did their best, but they gave him magazines filled with things like pornography, and he learned that that, that's what there is to do under stress. So when I met with him, of course, later, you know, abusing substances, shame and guilt, his, his children, his partner had known these things about him, and he was taking those behaviors very personally. So I used what I know about the human brain from a neurobiological perspective to show him that your your brain was programmed to do certain things under stress, and we learn those things. We learn what to do in childhood, and that was an adaptation to survive the stress, the chaos of of really raising yourself. So I was going after this the story or the narrative he'd created about himself that something was wrong with him. And my goal was from a trauma-informed perspective to show him nothing is wrong with you, but something's wrong with what happened to you. Welcome to the reframe. Over the next hour, You'll hear Dr. Page highlight the value of systemic approaches to treating trauma, explain how advances in neuroscience and neurobiology have improved trauma-focused interventions, describe the fundamental elements of effective trauma work, and discuss her personal practices for safeguarding against burnout. Dr. Page also describes how she incorporates humor into her clinical work. When there's been opportunities to demonstrate that this is a trustworthy relationship and there's safety here and non-judgment, there's opportunities for lightness. And see, it has to be because from a neurobiological perspective, part of what heals is this idea of reciprocal inhibition. So it's Wolpe's term that we were familiar with as behaviorists that we, you know, can't be horrified and laughing at the same time. Dr. Page began our conversation by sharing about how her early work with survivors of domestic violence sparked her passion for studying and practicing trauma-focused counseling. I began being a clinician about 20 years ago thinking my heart's work would be around serving um, survivors of domestic violence, and I had that opportunity and absolutely loved sitting mostly with women at that time and their children in shelter settings, and then my career led me to working with sexual violence. and. And I enjoyed that, again, working with children mainly in their families, putting my head around how to be of service. But this was a long time ago and long before we had the benefit of some of the more evidence-based approaches to being of service to, to survivors of trauma. And so I was thinking at that time, you know, that I, I think I had the person-centered skills and the Adlerian skills to be present for those I was serving, but the feedback I was getting essentially was 
that I feel good when I sit with you, Melinda, but then I return to my life and there's a huge hole. Uh, one woman, I'll never forget her saying, kind of at the center of my soul um, that, I, that I walk around with and, and I knew there was more I could do as a clinician. And so I just started attending any training that I could find literally anywhere sort of on this mission to figure this out, you know, at a time before Bessel van der Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, and, and a lot of EMDR wasn't well known at that time, at least in the trenches where I was serving. And that's where my journey started, Dr. Casares, really in this wholehearted mission to be of service to survivors of trauma. So what were some of the major takeaways from those initial trainings that you felt like excited to begin to implement? But then over time, kind of felt like, oh, maybe they're falling a bit short, or maybe you need to expand your expertise. The, what I learned out there was to create an experience that, that excellent trauma work, it, of course, is grounded in that beautiful working alliance, that connection, that therapeutic alliance, and that certainly is our foundation. But these, these clinicians that were training in, in a vast a variety of I would say at that time, non-evidence-based approaches, they were considered alternatives like clinical hypnosis and EFT. They share this idea that, that trauma work, good trauma work, is the antithesis of the traumatic event itself. It brings power. It brings voice. It brings choice. It's about strengths and resiliency and survival, and it is an experience that codes just like the event itself in, in its power and that the clinicians are, um, one trainer said, you happen to the client, just like the trauma itself did. So the, the experiential approaches really were what I was learning to do in the early days. Did you feel a tremendous sense of not just responsibility and obligation to your clients, but recognizing that you're going to serve in your role as the antithesis of the trauma? How did you even wrap your mind around that opportunity? I was humbled by it. I've, I've always been humbled by this work because I knew I was sitting with incredibly strong, resilient human beings. I just didn't have the language to get that across yet. I, and I learned metaphors like the oak from my clinical hypnosis training that, that survivors have deep roots and strong branches having survived many storms. And so I, that's mainly what I, what I gained. I gained a grounding um, in the work and an appreciation for the work and, and the skills, certainly in the appreciation for the strength and resiliency of the people I was serving. Well, I've had the privilege of attending one of your trainings, and you gave that powerful metaphor of the oak. And one of the things that you described that really struck me was how you kind of reframed or developed a new narrative related to, say, what might traditionally be considered uh, negative coping mechanisms or coping strategies. And you just kind of said, like, well, you know, you were in survival mode. Like, what else could you have done? You, you did your best. And I just thought, like, that that level of empathy and just, you know, positive reframe was so powerful. Could you give me examples of other ways in which you've tried to maybe normalize behavior that other clinicians might be more judgmental of and how that served you well as a trauma counselor? It's critical to the work that I do because, as you, as you know, as a fellow clinician, shame and guilt is primary in, in terms of what comes in with the client 
and I'm thinking of ways in order for, for the client to be able to look through a scientific lens at themselves and not take what their brains were doing personally, but rather to see their mind's response, their body's response to the event as normal. So what we, we know in the literature is that we call those adaptations for survival. That is what all behaviors are under stress. The brain does what it can do in the moment to survive based on old learning. So I worked with this man I'll always remember who had experiences in childhood um, because he was raised by his older brothers who did their best, but they gave him magazines filled with things like pornography, and he learned that, that that's what there is to do under stress. Is that was the way he played, and if he had been given Legos, he would have been an engineer. So when I met with him, of course, later, you know, abusing substances, shame and guilt, his, his children, his partner had, had known these things about him, and he was taking those behaviors very personally. So I used what I know about the human brain from a neurobiological perspective to show him that your, your brain was programmed to do certain things under stress, and we learn those things. We learn what to do in childhood, and that was an adaptation to survive the stress, the chaos of, of really raising yourself. So of course, mind gravitates toward that now that you're an adult, thinking this is a way to stay safe and be playful and be at ease. So I was going after this the story or the narrative he'd created about himself that something was wrong with him. And my goal was, from a trauma-informed perspective, to show him nothing is wrong with you, but something's wrong with what happened to you. So again, disidentifying client from negative behavior, from his brain and what his brain was up to under stress. So those are some of the things that are critical in terms of what I think clinicians need to know now, serving survivors. Well, in the brief time that we've spoken, you've really emphasized several times the necessity of approaching trauma from an evidence-based perspective. Could you describe, say, in recent years, how our understanding of neuroscience and neurobiology has developed in a way that can enhance our evidence-based approaches? Yes. Yes. Th because we know about the brain, thanks to work by Bessel van der Kolk and The Body Keeps the Score and other researchers, that the, the primitive part of the brain, the limbic structure, is what changes because of high stress loads or cortisol. Literally, the, there's a region called the hippocampal region in the midbrain that atrophies or loses blood volume. So in functional MRIs, we can see this region as is it was, I joke, it was a banana, you know, in, in its shape, and now it looks like a pancake. And that's an injury. So there was a movement in our field to change the term post-traumatic stress disorder to post-traumatic stress injury so that individuals could come and get care for this medical condition, not psychiatric, because although it's coded and billed that way, it truly is a structural change in the brain. So essentially, from an evidence-based perspective, what I think is critical for clinicians to know is that now that we have functional MRIs of the brain, we can actually see the structural changes that happen as a result of high stress loads, otherwise known as traumatic experiences on the brain. And we can see that there's a region of the brain in the middle, the hippocampal region, that has lost blood volume. So technically, 
PTSD is not a disorder but a, an injury. It's actually a medical condition. Now that's critical because individuals that we serve have a, a good amount of shame and guilt often about what their behaviors have been like since the trauma began. Their shame and guilt around what perhaps what he did when he was traumatized, things like substance abuse, aggression, all of these normal when there's been a brain injury. So this new science has allowed us then to understand that there's a brain injury and help the client then disidentify from brain. And I, I try to keep the work very light because um, again, I'm the experience that should be the antithesis of the traumatic event, but I make jokes like, have you been, you know, been taking what your brain's been doing personally? How about your intestines? You know, we joke, and, and I say, sometimes I do too, but really, we are some combination of our genetics and then the amount of stress we've had in our lives, neither of which we have any choice over. So there it is again, that trauma-informed care uh, sentence that I love so much. It's not what's wrong with you, it's what's happened to you. And again, I'm using that very intentionally as a clinician to provide psychoeducation so that the client doesn't take what their brain's done personally. Behavior, I say, is, is sort of like, it comes from the primitive region. The 90% we think that's subcortical. And I liken that to a car, you know, when there's been too many potholes in the road, our car gets out of alignment and it goes off track. Well, so does behavior when we've been through too many stressful events. And so many of our clients, as, you, as I'm sure our listeners know, have been through one event after another after another filled with trauma and stress. And so they aren't the trauma, they aren't the, the atrophied region of the midbrain, they are strong surviving individuals that continue to keep going. There's so much within what you just said that I'd love to unpack and I'd love to begin with kind of distinguishing between capital T trauma versus little t trauma uh, for those out there who may not be as familiar with trauma work. Yes, it is that most individuals come to me and say, well, I haven't been to war and, you know, or I haven't been raped. I haven't had any trauma <laughs> happen. And what, what we know as clinicians is that it, the small t traumas, the death by a thousand paper cuts, the microaggression, the racism, the, the things that individuals marinate in um, culturally, in their families and in their systems that causes them to feel less than, those are small t's that cause, again, the brain to, to stress happens and it causes the brain to then be on guard. <laughs> alarming, searching for anything dangerous. That, that is what most humans, especially those living in oppressed, marginalized environments are, are, are going through. So it's critical to me that individuals know it doesn't have to be the big things. It's often, and those things certainly are, and can be, can be causes of PTSD. But more what we see in our offices are individuals living with many paper cuts, the small T traumas. A lot of people, you know, and rightly so, think of trauma as such serious and heavy work. And as you mentioned earlier, it still can be a fertile place for integrating humor. I'd love to hear more about how you've integrated humor into the serious work that you do. Yes, and, and it's, a, it's an art, this work. Um, and we're careful to build that strong therapeutic bond 
working alliance that's critical in trauma work. And then with that, um, when there's been opportunities to demonstrate that this is a trustworthy relationship and there's safety here and non-judgment, there's opportunities for lightness. And see, it has to be because from a neurobiological perspective, part of what heals is the, this idea of reciprocal inhibition. So it's Wolpe's term that we were familiar with as behaviorists that we you know, can't be horrified and laughing at the same time. So the greats like Ellis knew this, he, you know, to cause laughter when there's, there's a, we, we essentially use exposure in trauma work. Although now we titrate exposure, it's gentler and, and easier. Um, Exposure-based therapies still mean we go to the narrative, but when we can touch it easily with lightness and with this idea of being the oak, and I used things that cause the person to feel that the pressure has made the diamond, that the lotus has needed the mud to be the lotus, that with with this sense of ease and calm as I approach subjects like rape and war, uh, there's, there's the survival of that, the fact that they made it, that they're sitting with me, they had the courage to come to sit with a stranger, although they were filled with shame and guilt. That's where lightness comes in. Also, I'm teaching the brain that I am the opposite of that experience and it's over now, so that the brain can then move the data into the done file which causes the brain to sort of reintegrate the narrative and, and get that it's finished. So lightness and ease and humor are used very strategically and intentionally to clear trauma, to resolve trauma. You've acknowledged how significant and critical it is to do psychoeducation and that throughout this process of addressing trauma to be teaching. Can you tell me more about the various types of psychoeducation that you impart to your clients to assist them both, you know, in session and out of session as they work to heal from that trauma? Yes, yes, it's a great question. I'm I'm always thinking metacognitively that the goal with psychoeducation is to cause the client not to take what their brain has been doing personally, not to look through that moralistic lens, but through a scientific one themselves to write a narrative that is that is that is clear and free of the distortions that happen when our mind is under stress. So that's that's the intention and that's primary. And from there then I'm 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 teaching about the brain, the brain under stress. So the psychoeducation around the work really in, is infused in these metaphors, stories that that we can relate to. I make a jo a joke about um, well, why does a giraffe have a very long neck and a very long tongue? So giraffe is an interesting example of that for me. Having seen a giraffe eat, the giraffe has a very, very long tongue, unusually long, and this long neck and stretches up. So to understand why the giraffe behaves in that way, we would need to first watch how giraffes survive and what they need to do and be to survive. And that helps us to understand why we behave in the way we do. While often that's pathologized in humans, we are all using adaptations for survival that we learned early in life. Form fits function. So while we might see a child that's been raised in the inner cities in the classroom and wonder why he acts in those ways, we might see that those behaviors are necessary in his environment for survival. So the psychoeducation happens in the story. 
it happens to normalize, it happens to teach about the brain, but the intention always is to look through a scientific lens at ourselves. I am some combination of my genetics and my environmental stress, and I cannot do anything any different than I did, given those two variables in any one moment of my life. So as you well know, narrative work is about sitting with an individual and supporting them as they co-create a narrative in which they can see themselves as having survived in the only way that they could. So the psychoeducation is used to serve the client in co-creating that narrative. And so what we know from Herman, Judith Herman, is that we believe after we've been traumatized that, that for example, I'm not okay and neither is the world. So that is essentially the tra traumatic meaning that the cognitive behavioral tradition seeks to use restructuring, that, that narrative to cause it to be that I can see if I've been traumatized myself clearly and not through that emotionally high distorted distortion that comes from an emotional period in my life. And so essentially what I'm doing is, is a narrative clinician is I'm sitting with my client, witnessing their, their lived experience, and then I'm using what I know about the brain and offering, just offering a different lens. Perhaps that's been a moralistic way to look at, at how you've been showing up. Let's look at this individual through a perhaps scientific lens. And sometimes I, I ask, you know, let's change her hair color perhaps so that we can then see her with some objectivity and ask my client, do you think she could have done this any differently given the stress she was under, her support system or lack thereof usually? And there's that story is then rebuilt from there because often my clients can let her off the hook, right? This version of myself with different color hair and get, she did the best she could. And then I offer that, that opportunity to then restory from the client's perspective, always going after this idea that shame and guilt are playing in the brain. And we want to offer the client an opportunity to see themselves as surviving, as adapting, as growing, as becoming the, the lotus or the diamond through that narrative. As you describe that process, it makes me think of one of the narrative techniques of inviting clients to share their story in front of a supportive audience. And you've already characterized many of your approaches as offering that support. I, I'm just curious, there are there other ways in which you as a clinician try to convey or facilitate a supportive environment to ensure that that client feels like, oh, you know, I'm sharing my story to a supportive and encouraging audience? Yes, and thank you for that. That's another very essential part. The more I do trauma work, the more I seek to impact the system to educate the system that the client is going home to. Because it's one thing for me to understand the science, I'm thinking specifically in my service of veterans. Individuals come back from combat scenarios, their, their brain has endured stress, their, their behaviors are very uh, different often than when they went to war. I'd like the partner of this, this individual to know, this service member to know, about the brain, about the change in structure, about high cortisol loads and how they cause cars, Mercedes even, to go off the road when there have been too many potholes. So increasingly I'm getting into the system, educating anybody who will lay eyes on this individual. And I've been taught by my clients that have come for, for trauma work. One gentleman said, 
I've, my wife and kids are leaving me. So what good is not having PTSD anymore if I'm going home to an empty apartment with my cat? And I heard him. And so I instantly said, well, get me, get me to your family. And the children understood the neurobiology, the, the partner understood, and we were all enlightened together. And so if we all look through that scientific lens rather than that moralistic one, we can then come together as communities. You've already spoken about so many various aspects of what it means to be a competent and effective clinician. I just think about it from the perspective of a novice counselor, even myself. You know, I've only been doing counseling for not quite six years yet. And you, you talked about systems theory. You've talked about developing competency as a trauma therapist. You've referenced, you know, so many of the greats who've paved uh, the way for the evolution of the counseling profession. What would you recommend would be a good starting place for novice clinicians to begin the process of developing evidence-based approach to trauma as well as uh, integrating systemic perspectives? Understanding the brain, I think, is primary. And understanding specifically the way the brain works under high stress loads, I think that's critical. And second to that, I think Briere's work around this idea that PTSD really is the brain healing itself. It is, it's attempting, our brain is attempting to take the data about the thing that, that's happened that's still in the happening file, that's what PTSD is, and to move it to the done file, this idea that the way we now titrate exposure, according to Briere's work, it's gradual, it's, it's keeping the client grounded and present in the, in, the, in the here and now as we move data with these other concepts of lightness and ease and resiliency. I can think of, of course, Judith Herman's work, trauma and recovery is critical. And then probably most importantly now to me is Bessel van der Kolk's work that, you, that I've mentioned several times because it's, it's taking this, this scientific sort of didactic material that's so hard to digest and putting it into a frame that, that's easily understandable to the general public. Here's my brain, here's what my brain does under stress, and essentially it isn't personal what my brain's been doing. We just acknowledge how important it is to assist the client in remaining grounded and present in the therapy session. But as a clinician, you're hearing these stories of trauma what are some of the techniques that you employ to help yourself remain grounded and present in the midst of these troubling narratives? I'm the anchor to the present moment. I am holding the space as the anchor, meaning I am holding myself to the present moment, and, I'm, and it's moment to moment. We're human. We're affected by what we hear, but, but I'm always staying here now, aware that I'm hearing data about an event that the client has triumphed over. Mighty oak, deep root, strong branches. That's what I'm seeing and I'm not hearing about the storm, but I'm seeing the oak. So it's difficult in our work, um, as you know, Dr. Casares, because we often get hypnotized by the client's story. We're highly empathic as clinicians and connected and relational. And, and so that, that that's, that's a skill I learned as a trauma clinician, is while I am certainly available, I am almost like the surgeon. How, how upset do we want our surgeon to be about the, the fact that, that the child was, was shot or injured? Not at all. We want surgeon present. Having 
having known what happened. But again, just to, the, to frame, often when I teach on this, there's this idea that that there's a minimization of the client's experience if, if there's not this reflection of these intensely negative emotions. And it, that's the art, and it's also more of the science that, that in the first stage, in the first stage of trauma therapy, in safety stabilization, and when we're teaching emotional regulation in the psychoeducation, that's the time really when I'm explaining why it's so critical that the therapist stay present and the client stay present. That this this idea that we stay here now has been offered as is the the first stage of the psychoeducation of of what this trauma treatment experience will be like. There's consent to that. So it isn't minimizing when the client has sort of been informed and almost has consented to understanding that in the second stage, we're going to be remaining present, grounded, you and I here, connected, emotionally staying present as we then move through the narrative, remembering that, that that's data about an event that you've defeated. So me being present is something, and the, the, the client as well staying present, is something we agree to do in the informed consent. So now I think about you've remained present in the session, like you've done the work of that time together, you've held that space as the anchor, and maybe you've seen multiple clients in a single day and worked through some very serious trauma issues. Could you speak about the importance and necessity of self-care as a trauma counselor outside of those sessions? Yes, it, more, more from a systemic perspective. I believe that we need each other. We need communities of fellow trauma clinicians to be with as we're in service. We need connected, well communities in mental health care so that we feel a sense of belonging and we feel affirmed in the environments that we work within so that when we do go into the room, we are supported. I think that's critical, not only in our, in our setting as clinicians, but in our in our worlds, that we are connected and feel a sense of belonging. And we bring that grounded sense into the room, into the space with our client. What recommendations would you give for fellow counselors that either you've tried to exhibit as a colleague or you've benefited from in remaining in that supportive community that could help promote the wellness and the continued well-being of fellow clinicians? I really love the trauma-informed care um, principles and the, the organizational mandates in the TIP 57 that the Department of, of Mental Health and SAMHSA have really highlighted in, in the last 20 years is that when we are all trauma-informed in our communities, when we all look at each other through this scientific lens that we're doing the very best we can given our environment, given our genetics, and given what we learn to do to survive, when we can all look through the same trauma-informed lens and have the, this attitude, we call it, in, in, as counselor educators, when we can look at each other in that way, it isn't such a stretch, stretch then to go in and, and look, help our clients look through that lens. So it would be the trauma-informed care principles that, that Harris and Fallow have identified that have been most useful examples. And then maybe more specifically, or I guess you could say personally to you, are there certain reminders that you have to offer yourself or certain practices throughout your week that you just need to really emphasize and prioritize to ensure that you're taking care of yourself? I do. I, I 
have to stay um, anchored to, to myself, to my truth. I journal every day. It is essential that I make sure that my narrative is clear and I'm not being hypnotized <laughs> by a story or a version of myself um, that isn't useful to me. I meditate daily, engage in diaphragmic breath and yoga and, and exercise. I, I do the best I can. It's certainly not a perfect journey, but I really do believe that I'm the instrument that I use to do this work, and I have to stay as sharp as I can. I find myself saying almost on every episode about the expertise and the experiences of my guests, like, oh, I hear so many people say, like, I could never do that. And one of the things that struck me about the training of yours I attended was the tremendous emphasis on our ethical obligation as counselors to be well-versed and competent in addressing trauma. Could you share about the work that you do as a trauma educator and a consultant to assist clinicians in developing that competency and perhaps receiving the necessary supervision required to effectively address these issues? Yes, and I've created a community so that individuals don't just have the benefit of trauma knowledge. And, and just to back up there, not all of us have. So I'm finding many folks in training nationally have not had a graduate level course in trauma. So even the trauma knowledge, that gift of knowing um, Vanderkolk's work and Breer's work is, is fairly new to clinicians in the trenches. So trauma knowledge is a piece of it. But what's, and I'm seeing a lot of certification in our industry around that knowledge. And then consumers might believe that because a, a clinician has that certification or the certificate on the wall in their office, they've also had the skills training. But in our field, as the American Counseling Association and AMCA, and also the social work or the National Association for Social Workers would say that we need supervised experience in addition to, to, to training. And I'm not seeing that in our field as, as much as I would like to. Um, Indira, eye movement desensitization, reprocessing, they have an association that's international that does require that a clinician have supervised tr training, supervised work with their client before being certified. But they're the only organization that I'm aware of, and I'm still out there learning and trying to find more to send students to, but I've created a community then so that at least within my, my centers of influence, I can then offer that. It isn't enough in my experience to know the neurobiology. I need to see a clinician create that narrative in front of me. I need a supervised experience so I can have the confidence it takes to say I'm a competent trauma clinician. And I don't believe just a workshop or two in knowledge is sufficient. So there's clearly a ways to go in our profession to better address the prevalence of trauma in the lives of our clients. What would you hope for in terms of our profession advancing in that domain? I would like those of us that have the privilege, I believe we are privileged in that we had opportunity to study at a doctoral level, that we are and, and I humbly took myself out of the trenches to become an academician. I now, in my view, have a responsibility to take what's what we know in the literature and bring it back to those that haven't had that privilege, that are serving 12 hours a day in the trenches and don't have time to read a journal article. So I come at this from, from a, I do this with gratitude for what I've been gifted to know. 
And I think what that means is we go into community and we offer those opportunities to sit with clinicians that so, uh, I think we want these skills. We, I don't think we know where to get them. And I think supervised experience with a trauma-specific, trauma-competent supervisor is even harder to find in my community. So I call to fellow scholars that have had this privilege of studying and have these skills to consider going into the community and trying to find ways to, to sit with new clinicians and teach the art that we've been privileged to learn. You mentioned that currently you're really working to be boots on the ground and to provide those practical tips and training and supervision to those who don't have time to read articles, but you've also done research yourself. Uh, I'm wondering if you could speak more about the research that you've done as an academic. Yes, I, I'm a qualitative researcher and I privilege lived experience. Um, I think there's so much to be learned from the wisdom of those that have done the work. So I interviewed trauma experts. Again, there was no way to quantify that. But what, what, what I did was I, I went out into the EMDR community and the clinical hypnosis community and asked for folks that were seasoned in, in regards to doing the work. I asked them, what skills, knowledge, and attitude do we need to have as counselors serving trauma survivors? And the, the narratives were beautiful. The surveys really highlighted these skills, narrowed them down, this knowledge base, this attitude beautifully. And I was so honored to capture their experience. So from that, I've developed um, an assessment tool that we're now going to hopefully do exploratory factor analysis with to find out, did essentially these qualitative themes, will that load? How will that load in a quantitative model? So I'm, I'm curious, and I believe my bias is that I want to know from the community of trauma clinicians what, they're, what they know. I don't believe one expert coming in um, should have have the, the mic, so to speak, on, on these things, that we need communities and shared knowledge and experience to hand down to the next generation of trauma clinicians. Are there other aspects of your training or of your work that we haven't touched on that you would like to speak about? I think the most critical thing that I'm doing now is, as you said, but thank you for that boots on the ground. I'm I'm going into community mental health and providing consultation to make these our systems trauma-informed and trauma-competent. There's such a thirst and a need, and folks are asking. They're hearing the term trauma-informed. You know, Oprah said it, I think, two years ago, and now there's a real interest now. There's an opening now in the field to go into communities and teach these principles so that the, the survivor is now in an environment where they feel that they have voice and, and, and choice and, and they're educated from a trauma-competent perspective in terms of their brains. There's an opportunity now. So I'm out there doing as much teaching as I can in, in the community. That's quite an honor. So maybe there's some listeners out there who are saying, you know, I'm hungry for that as well. Like, I, I really need that assistance. Where can those listeners find out more about you and your website and the work that you're doing? I've put my, my clinical work and the training opportunities that I've had, as well as my research, on my website, which is just my name, melindapagephd.com. And I believe you have some upcoming trainings in the next couple months. I do. I'm training at Peachford Hospital here in Atlanta. This is a three-part trauma competency series. That'll be um, in June, July, and August. And I've, I've created a community on Facebook that I'm very proud of. It's the Trauma Competent Clinician. 
and it's amazing how it's caught. There's been so much interest in building this. It's a very simple way of, of just connecting with one another. Um, it's trauma-competent clinician. And what's interesting to me is that clients, uh, folks that are seeking trauma services are now interested in, in what it means to be competent. And so there's questions that they have about what good trauma work looks like. So I had no idea that the community would involve folks that are also looking for their own healing. Has participation in that Facebook community helped you to grow as a clinician or encourage you in the work that you do? It absolutely has. It's telling me what the needs are, as, as you mentioned, on the ground. I'm very, I, I think I've emphasized several times what a privilege this work is, what a privilege it is to study in the way that I have, and to come to understand what I understand, most of it is informed by the clinicians I serve, So, and the clinicians now that I serve. So I want to know from them what they need from us, from those of us that have studied trauma work in a, in a more scholarly or academic way. Well, I want to thank you so much for your time, for sharing so openly and passionately about the work that you do. And I just wrap up every show by asking each guest to think about a time in their life where they had a mindset that maybe was negative or counterproductive, and they just took a step back, and they thought about it in a different way, and that way of reframing that reality made all the difference. Well, I think in my personal life, it, it's been extremely healing to know that, that the things that I've experienced, all of them have, have been the pressure that caused the diamond. So the work I do every single day with people and what the lens I have to look through as a trauma clinician has caused me to look through a very similar lens. So having experienced difficult things in my life and when, when I do, I hear their voices in my head. I hear the voices of the people that have been through things as difficult as I have or even more so. And the way that they reframe their narrative has inspired me and inspires me every day that I do this work. The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on The Reframe.